We're on page 216. We're going to be looking predominantly at John's account found in John chapter 18, beginning at verse 28. But we'll also look at Mark chapter 15, Matthew chapter 27, and Luke chapter 23. But let's pray. Father, we thank you for this evening. It is a joy that we can all be together and just um, enjoying one another and your presence and your word. So as we uh, look at the life of Messiah, particularly with regard to his trial before Pilate and Herod, uh, we just pray, Lord, you might help us to understand it better, more fully, and as such, we might live in a way um, that honors you more completely. We pray in Yeshua's name. Amen. So, uh, we're covering that section in the life of Messiah that deals with the rejection of the king. And we're looking at this area that deals with the trial and death of our Messiah. We had taken a look at the religious trial, the Jewish trial, his trial first before Annas, and then his trial before Caiaphas, and then his, the present, his trial before the entire Sanhedrin. And now he will be brought before uh, Pilate. Of course, not having a witness, Judas, who had committed, committed suicide, throws this part of the trial into chaos as well as the previous part. Because in Roman law, there was a need for a witness to testify to um, the accused of committing a crime that is punishable by death under Roman law. Judas was critical on this front. We'll see in a moment. But uh, the civil trial before Pilate, like the religious trial before uh, Annas, Caiaphas, and the Sanhedrin, is also in three segments. So in the civil trial, he's going to be brought before Pilate in the first stage. In the second stage, he's going to be brought before Herod Antipas. And in the third stage, he's going to be brought before Pilate once again. This trial is covered in paragraphs 159 through 162. In the religious trial, the issue was blasphemy. And that's what they finally... um, Uh, charge him with because he claimed to be the son of God and so they charge him with blasphemy they say what further need is there for witnesses Uh, he is uh, guilty in the civil charge before Rome the issue is not blasphemy but the issue is going to be one of sedition or treason against the Roman Empire in the Jewish trial the religious trial there were 22 laws which were violated rules of the Sanhedrin in the Roman trial there are two laws the first is that all the proceedings must be conducted in in public and in the account we find the trial before Pilate is very public and perhaps to to a certain degree uh, to Pilate's regret that it was so public a second rule or law that the Romans had was that the trial had to begin with a prosecuting witness. And he was to present a charge that was deemed punishable by death under Roman law. 
Of course, because Judas is gone, there's no prosecuting witness. But they still want to go forward with the trial in an attempt to um, uh, move things along in such a way that Yeshua might be executed. Paragraph 159, we have the first trial, the first stage of the trial, and it's, it's a trial in which he stands before Pilate. Pilate is a Roman citizen born in Spain. He served as procurator or governor of Judea and Samaria from 26 to 36 uh, CE, common era or AD, year of our Messiah, year of our Lord, 26 to 36. As procurator, his tenure as such was the longest ruling procurator in Judea and Samaria uh, among the Roman procurators. And this trial occurs at the midpoint of his procuratorship around A.D. uh, 30. In the Jewish writings, such as in Josephus, Pilate is presented and is known for his cruelty. But he is a good Roman, and he follows very fully and completely a Roman procedure. Now, the account takes place here uh, in the early morning hours, and Pilate is already uh, dressed and ready to conduct the trial, even though it's like four or five o'clock in the morning that Yeshua is brought to him. The reason he's ready to go is because he knows a trial will occur because he had released the Roman cohort in order to see that Yeshua would be arrested. So he knows there's going to be arrest. He's already aware of a trial to ensue, and he's prepared for it. In John, verse 28, we read John's account. They led Yeshua, therefore, from Caiaphas into the palace, and it was early. And they themselves entered not into the palace, that they may not be defiled, um, but might eat the Passover. So now, according to Matthew, Yeshua kept all the law. He said, I came not to, f- to destroy the law, but to fulfill it. And in the Mosaic law, it is specified on what day the Passover was to be eaten. Some have suggested on the basis of this passage that they had not already celebrated Passover or celebrated the Seder. But in this passage, when, he sa- when the text tells us that they did not want to be defiled because they um, but might eat the Passover, they're not dealing with the Passover Seder that is partaken of on the first night of Passover, which would have occurred Thursday evening when he celebrated Passover with his disciples. There are some scholars who have said that The account that we understand in the upper room as being a Passover was not a Passover. For if it was Passover, how could we then read here after they arrest Yeshua that they did not want to enter the Roman palace, the procurator's palace, because they didn't want to be defiled. For if they were defiled, then they couldn't partake of the Passover. So did he or did they not partake of the Passover the night before? The answer is that they did partake of the Passover the night before because that is a reference to the Passover Seder. 
and thus the Passover lambs were sacrificed during the day on Thursday so that the families could have a Passover lamb for the Seder meal that Thursday night. The Passover, the phrase, the Passover in verse 28 in John's account is not referring to the Passover lamb that was sacrificed on Thursday to be eaten at the first night of the Passover Seder. The Passover that's being spoken of here is the offering that is provided on the first day of Passover known as the Chagiga offering, the festival offering. No, there, in, in the temple there were two offerings on Passover. On the night of Passover, you had the Passover lambs. Well, they had to be offered before the evening because in the evening they celebrate Passover and then they, would, they partake of the Seder. The next day, there are offerings that are offered in the temple in accordance with Deuteronomy 16, known as the festival offering, which uh, the rabbis refer to not as the, as the uh, Pesach, but as the Chagiga, the festival. There are two offerings that were offered in the beginning of Passover. The, night, the day before the evening, and then on the first day of Passover, the Chagiga. So what they don't want to be defiled for is... They want to be able to enter the temple on Friday day when the festival offerings would be offered and the, um, the meat of those offerings would be partaken of by the high priest and the 24 elders. And so the reference in John 18 is to the Chagiga offering, not the Pesach offering. The Pesach offering is, is eaten by families, but the Chagiga offering is eaten by the high priest and the 24 elders. And is that not comporting with the first day of the, of the Feast of Unleavened Bread, it's which the, is the 15th it, of Nisan, no? No, it's, the, it's on the 14th, but it's in the morning. Remember, the, fe, the festival starts at sundown. Right. So sundown on Thursday is the 14th. Sundown Thursday is, is the, the 14th, 14th. Yeah. and Friday morning at 9 o'clock, it's still the 14th. Okay, so then the first day... Is... Yes, oh, okay, so let me back up. I just took something for granted, and that is all Jewish reckoning begins at sundown, because in Genesis chapter 1, it says the evening and the morning is the first day. So the Sabbath begins Friday night at sundown. So... Passover, my estimation here, fell on a Thursday. So Thursday during the day, hundreds of thousands of Passover lambs are being offered. As, as I shared on Sunday, Josephus said on one Passover, 255,000 lambs were offered. So they can't wait to sundown to offer them. They're, they're offering them on the 13th, which would be... Thursday during the day. And Thursday during the day is the 13th. Thursday at night begins the 14th. So let's just say for the sake of argument, Thursday at 9 o'clock, you have offerings, Passover lamb offerings that are without spot and blemish that have been, uh, have been inspected since the Sunday before. Sunday, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, they're inspecting these lambs and they're finding these lambs to be without spot or blemish. So they're 
qualified to be offered as Passover lambs. On Thursday, those lambs are being offered during the day. But Thursday night, Passover begins. At, during the day. Well, <clears throat> if you're, you have to understand things change. So when you have hundreds of thousands of people, it's going to take you all day to see that that's offered. And the people observe the Passover by eating the Passover meal at night. They have to start, have their Seder at sundown on Thursday night. So that's why Yeshua says to the disciples, You'll go, you'll see an upper room that's thoroughly furnished. He says, prepare the Passover. So during the day on Thursday, they go to the temple. They get a lamb. It would have been placed on a spit. The two, Peter and John, would have, been, would have carried it on their shoulders. Right? That's how they're going to carry it. And they're going to carry it to the upper room. In that room, there's going to be an oven that they'll keep it warm. It said the room would be thoroughly furnished, so they'd have tables, they'd have pillows, they'd have utensils to eat. And that night they'll celebrate Passover. But that's one of hundreds of thousands of, of Passover meals that are going on. So they were sacrificing those lambs all day so that people can be getting them, bringing them home, preparing the Seder, and then eating it that night. The next day, it's still the 14th, right? Because it started Thursday night. So Thursday night, 12 o'clock at night, 1 o'clock Friday morning, a.m. It's when Yeshua is praying in the garden. He's arrested around 3 o'clock in the morning. He's on trial before Annas, Caiaphas, the Sanhedrin, upwards into like maybe 4 or 5 o'clock. Now he's going to be brought before Pilate. The high priest and, uh, and the other priests, they do not want to enter into Pilate's palace where they're now bringing Yeshua. Because if they do, when they leave, when the trial is over and they go back to the temple to offer up the Hagiga, they will be defiled to do that. So when they say the Passover... We have to understand how, how Jewish tradition worked. It doesn't just refer to the one Passover lamb. It re is referring to the fact that there is a Passover lamb. That's already passed. So what's the other Passover? Well, there was another offering. And it was called the festival offering, the Chagiga offering. Because this was a pilgrimage festival. And Deuteronomy 16 tells us that an additional offering is offered. That's why today, when we celebrate Passover... On the Seder table, you have two objects that refer to these sacrifices. One is the shank bone of a lamb, which represents the Passover lamb sacrifice, which was offered during the day on Thursday so they could eat it Thursday night. And the other is an egg that's hard-boiled and placed on the Seder plate. That hard-boiled egg represents the Hagiga offering that's offered the following morning on the 14th, the first day of Passover. Does that make sense chronologically? So when they say that they didn't want to be defiled because they want to partake of the Passover, they're speaking of the offering that's offered Friday morning, not the offering that was offered for the Seder Thursday night. There are two offerings. But all of this is Mishnaic. It's not in Tanakh. 
But but that's what was practiced. I understand. Yeah. But but so when people want to understand this, you can't find it in Tanakh. Right. You can't make sense out of it because if you look at Deuteronomy Leviticus twenty three, beginning verse four, uh, getting into the uh, what was going on actually verse five, and then that comports to some extent with Numbers twenty eight, beginning verse sixteen. It is so confusing that there had to be. This is my argument for our belief in, in oral laws being necessary, is that you you, can, you can't make sense out of this stuff apart from an a, an oral embellishment of what was going on. Yeah. Well. Am I right? Well, the thing is, Moses doesn't give us every the specifics as to how they would do what they did, but to call it an oral law, I don't think that is so. But it is a, the traditional manner in which they determined how they would go about fulfilling these laws. I think that's true. But there had to be some sort of oral transmission. Not words, well, not necessarily from God or Moses, but that the priests, right. Aaron, would have had to make certain decisions, some of which may have changed over time given different circumstances in which they lived. But it doesn't even mention in, in Leviticus 23 or Numbers 28 the specific offering of a, of a Passover lamb on the 14th of Nisan. Yeah, no, no, it's not even there. Yeah, but that I understand. But that... But the text here is not saying whether or not it's... I understand, I understand that It's just too. describing it. So my comments are only to try to explain that when in John 18, he says that they didn't want to be defiled so that they could eat the Passover. And we're saying that they already had the Passover. Some might say, well, that's a contradiction. Or some might say, what's going on here? Because I thought they ate the Passover. Well, we have to understand the first century, right or wrong... They had two offerings that were offered in light of the festival. All of which adds credibility to Mishnaic tradition. Does it I not? would say it, it doesn't add credibility. It only, it only indicates that it existed and was followed. Of course, were they, doing, were they following it as God wanted? We don't really know. We don't. But they at least made some choices to follow it to the best of their ability given the limitations they, of knowledge they had. But my concern is only to explain what is meant by the term the Passover. It's a reference to the second offering during the day on, pa on Passover. So the neat thing here is this is very precisely accurate, but not uh, a contradiction. So, okay, so let's move on. We're looking at John chapter 18 as we're dealing with this latter uh, moment. So they don't want to be defiled or else they would not be able to partake of the Passover sacrifice. If you look at John's account, verse uh, 29, in keeping with the second Roman law of the need for a prosecuting witness that uh, the result of which a, an accusation of a crime being committed that is worthy of death needs to be presented first. And so in verse 29, Pilate therefore went out unto them and his words are, what accusation do you bring against this man? So that is the reflection of the priority the Romans had, which was the first thing is an accusation is made, and then uh, the trial can commence. Can commence. So uh, in verse 30, what we learn is they don't have a witness anymore. So they attempt to pressure Pilate to move forward with the trial contrary to Roman law because they don't have a prosecuting witness. Because Judas had already gone out and committed suicide. So in verse 30, we read, They answered and said unto him, 
They don't produce a witness, but rather they say, if this man were not an evildoer, we would not have delivered him up to you. So they're just trying to pressure him into conducting the trial contrary to Roman uh, jurisprudence. And so in verse 31, Pilate tells us that he's not going to have any of this. If there's no accusations, there's not going to be a trial. So in verse 31, Pilate therefore said unto, unto them, take him yourself and judge him according to your law. So if you're going to have him judge according to my law or the Roman law, then you need to have a witness and an accusation. But if you're not going to produce one and just say, well, if he wasn't guilty, we wouldn't have brought him to you. Then he says, well, then go and take him and, and uh, judge him according to your own tradition, your own law. And uh, so if there's no trial, then Yeshua will not be condemned. And if he's not condemned, then there's no sentencing. And if there's no sentencing, that means he doesn't die. Now, here's another thing that's all interesting in this as well. And that is Yeshua has mentioned time and time again that the method by which he's going to die is going to be by crucifixion. And crucifixion is a Roman manner of punishment. So he has to be tried by Roman law. And he has to be found guilty in accordance with Roman law. And thus to be crucified. So if this doesn't go forward, then the uh, atonement can't, can't be offered, can't be provided. It's very interesting how all this is sort of a domino effect. But Yeshua is in tr control. And he's already laid out what is going to happen. He said over and over again, I'm going to be handed over to the Gentiles and I will be crucified. And the third day, I will rise again. So all of that has to be fulfilled, right? So uh, in verse 31 then, he is saying that uh, it's not lawful to try him under Roman law if there's no prosecuting witness. He says this in verse 31. The Jew, now the Jew, Jewish leaders respond, it is not lawful for us to put any man to death. And then here's the key phrase in verse 32, that the word of Yeshua might be fulfilled which he spoke, signifying but by what manner of death he ought, he ought to die. So the Jewish leaders are saying we can't try him by our law and execute him. Because we do not have the right of execution. And if he was to be tried by Jewish law and found guilty, the means of execution would be stoning, not crucifixion. And Yeshua has been saying all along that he is going to die by means of crucifixion. You know, that in a way, too, limits the time frame in which Yeshua can come into our world as well. I mean, if the Messiah has to die, this means, although the Old Testament, the Hebrew Scriptures don't say it that's that way, although Psalm 22 certainly suggests that, um, then he has to die during a period of time when the nation that uh, he is con in control of the na nation of Israel are crucifying their, their victims. But in verse 32... Um, in saying that Yeshua might be fulfilled, which he spoke, signifying by what manner of death. Yeshua said more than once that he would die by means of crucifixion. And crucifixion is not the Jewish mode of execution. It's the Roman mode. So um, if he was stoned to death by Jewish mode, then Yeshua would have been found to be a false prophet because he said that's how he would die. So all these things are very, are very critical. What's interesting, too, is if we ask the question at what point 
did the Romans take away the Jewish right to, um, to practice capital punishment? You know, we just, we just say the Romans denied the Jewish leaders, the Sanhedrin, the right to practice capital punishment. They said, you, you, don't ha- you do not have the authority to, to uh, mete it out. That's something the Romans. What's interesting is that didn't happen at the time that the Romans rode into Jerusalem. The Romans took control of Israel and Jerusalem 63 B.C. And they controlled it through Constantine, so 300, 400, somewhere. 313, I think, is Constantine, and shortly after that. But they did not take away the Jewish people's right to execute until, well, the Talmud tells us that... I don't know what... what, I don't know. That would be interesting on the tape. The, um, the Talmud tells us that they, thank you, Roger, that uh, the Jewish people were denied the right to capital punishment by the Romans 40 years before the destruction of the temple. <laughs> yes. So the temple was destroyed in 70 A.D., so 40 years before is 30 A.D. If Yeshua had been tried six months earlier, he would not have been crucified. So he had to have died at this particular point in, um, <clears throat> in history. So they took this right away from the Jewish people uh, at that point. And thus, for Yeshua to fulfill near prophecy, I'll be handed over to the Gentiles, the Romans, to be crucified, then it had to have been sometime after 30 AD, because that's when it was taken from there. It was always stoning for the Sanhedrin. What's that? The, the execution was always stoning. Always stoning, yeah. Now, in Luke verse 2, I remember we're looking at Mark 15, Matthew 27, Luke 23. In John chapter 18. So there, all these passages are dealing with the trial. But in Luke's account, we read in verse 2, And they began to accuse him, saying, We found this man. Now, these are the accusations, right? They don't have their witness. So they say, first of all, if we didn't find him guilty of anything, we wouldn't bring him to you. And Pilate says, well, you need a witness. If not, judge him by your own law. They say, But we can't judge him by our own law because we're not permitted to execute. We believe this man has done something guilty of death. And then in verse 2 it says, Then they began to accuse him. They don't have witnesses, but these individuals bring him before, these Jewish leaders, high priests and other priests and uh, scribes, as they're bringing him before Pilate, they say, We found him and they give him three counts or three accusations are made against him. First he says, We found this man perverting our nation. So there's a religious issue, perverting our nation, because they found him uh, guilty of blasphemy. And so they find him guilty of teaching things contrary to their tradition, and thus perverting the nation of Israel. 
Second thing they said is they found him, Luke chapter 23, verse 2, teaching that and forbidding one to give tribute to Caesar. Now, at this point, now they start moving into Roman issues that Pilate ought to be concerned about. And so by forbidding to give tribute to Caesar, that is an act of rebellion. They want to find him guilty of sedition, treason, rebellion. So the first thing they say is, we're not happy with him because he talked about our traditions. You ought not to be happy about him because he has taught people not to pay tribute to Caesar. And the third thing they say is, and that he himself is Messiah, a king. Now, the moment they mention that he's a king, they are suggesting that um, he's claiming himself to be king, thus in competition to Caesar. Of course, the word Caesar means king, and thus a, a competitor to the Roman ruler. So there are two issues the Romans would be concerned about, rebelliousness, sedition, treason, and competition with uh, Caesar. Now that Pilate has an accusation, Pilate can continue the trial by questioning the accused. So there needed to be that accusation. In John's account, verse 33, Pilate asks him some questions. Verse 33 says, Pilate therefore entered again into the palace. And he called Yeshua and said unto him, Are you the king of the Jews? So Pilate is not asking if Yeshua is the Messiah when he asks that. Pilate's a Roman. He doesn't care about uh, issues regarding the messiahship of, cl- of individuals who claim to be the messiah and the relevance to Israel. He wants to know if he's a competitor to Rome. So he, Pilate, is, when he says, so are you the king of the Jews? Uh, he wants to know if he is in competition with Caesar and therefore the Jewish people's king or uh, is Caesar the king overall the uh, Roman Empire, including the Jews. So John then records in verse 34, Yeshua answered, saying, answered, Do you say this of yourself, or did others tell it to you concerning me? It's interesting that uh, Yeshua responds in a very typical Jewish way. He answers a question with a question, which is what you read all throughout the Talmud and all the rabbinic writings. So he wants clarification as to what kind of a question Pilate is asking him. So he's asking him, on what basis are you asking me this question? Are you asking me from the perspective of a Jew? Or are you asking me from the perspective of a Roman? When he says, are you saying this of yourself? Are you asking me, am I a king from a Roman perspective, from your own perspective? Or did others tell you? concerning me? Or are you asking me in light of the uh, Jewish people, in this case the priesthood, who are uh, accusing me as being Israel's king or others? So are you asking me on the perspective of being a Jew or are you asking me from the perspective of, uh, Ro- uh, of being a Roman and, you're, and in light of uh, those two issues? So in verse 35, Pilate responds and he says, Am I a Jew? So he's saying, look, I'm not asking you on the basis of being a Jew. I'm not a Jew. I'm asking you the question uh, from a Roman perspective, from my own perspective. He says, your own nation and the chief priests 
have delivered you unto me. What have you done? I'm not asking you as a Jew. I'm not a Jew. I'm asking you on the basis that your own people are bringing you here. And, um, and what is it that you have done? Are you claiming to be a competitor of Caesar's? You've been turned over to me by your own people. What I want to know is, are you in competition with Caesar? Do you seek to overthrow him? Are you leading a rebellion? Verse 36, Yeshua answers. He says, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, then would my servants fight that I should not be delivered to the Jews. But now is my kingdom not from hence or not from now. So in verse 36, Yeshua can now respond knowing what Pilate is asking. Pilate is asking, are you a competitor of Caesar's? And Yeshua answers, first of all, by saying, no, I'm not a competitor of Caesar. He says, my kingdom is not of this world. I'm not seeking to overthrow Rome. Now, when he says that my kingdom is not of this world, and many who deny the millennial kingdom, many who are amillennialists, they believe in no millennial kingdom, no literal fulfillment of the promises to the Jewish people, they oftentimes do so on the basis of this passage. Because when Yeshua says, my kingdom is not of this world, they argue, well then, why do you insist that Messiah has to return to this world and establish his kingdom in this world? Because he said, my kingdom is not of this world. But there is a difference between the phrase, of this world, and in this world. When he says, my kingdom is not of this world, he means to say, my kingdom is not of this world's value system. In other words, um, he said, the kingdom is not of this order that is uh, present in our world. So, in, by the way, in John ch chapter 16 and 17, Yeshua oftentimes makes the distinction between the phrase of the world and in the world. So he will say, you are not of the world, but you are in the world. So being in the world and being of the world are two separate things. The kingdom of Messiah is not of this world. It is contrary to the values of this world. It is distinct from the way this world operates. But it will be a kingdom in this world. In the same way that we are not, those of us who are believers in Messiah, we are not of this world, but we are in this world as ones who are new creations in Messiah. So to be of this world's nature... We are no longer of this world in terms of being of its nature. We are born again. We are new creations. And thus as new creations, we're in this world, but we're not of this world. Similarly, Messiah's kingdom is not a kingdom of this nature. It is distinct from the kingdoms of this world. will operate different. Messiah's kingdom is not of this world's nation. Yeshua's kingdom is a kingdom of David. Yeshua's kingdom is a kingdom in which he will sit on his own throne, not on another king's throne. His kingdom will not be of the world, but one day when he returns, he'll sit on the throne of David, he'll change the topography, and he'll rebuild the temple, he will be the priest of the temple as well as the king over Jerusalem, and thus it will be in this world, but it will not be a kingdom that is of this world. It will stand apart from the kingdoms of this world. And that's what the the book of Daniel indicates. 
You know, when Nebuchadnezzar sees the images or Daniel has the dreams and he sees Babylon and Persia and Greece and Rome, those are empires of this world. But the kingdom of God, Messiah's kingdom, is not of this world and therefore it destroys these kingdoms. And it comes in the world, into this world, while being distinct from the world's nature and from the world's character. The second thing, let me just move on here, but the second thing he says is that his kingdom, if look in verse uh, 36, not only does he say, look, I'm not in competition to Rome. Why? Because my kingdom is not of this world, Rome's is. And that's the high point of all the imagery in Daniel, right? In the book of Revelation is that is Rome and here it is. And of course, there's going to be a final kingdom that will uh, be even more powerful, but much shorter lived, only three and a half years or seven years, right? So, um, so here you, we are at the height of what Nebuchadnezzar sees, of what Daniel sees. And he says, my kingdom's not of this. I'm not in competition with it, at least not now. When I return, maybe another story, but right now I'm not in competition with, with Caesar. And he also says this, that, and my kingdom is not from now. Yeshua's meaning because of the rejection of the king. We saw that in paragraph 61 when the Jewish leaders led the nation into rejecting the messianic offer, the messianic kingdom offer. And then judgment is set. And we've come back to this time and time again. Judgment is set, which will fall in 70 AD when Messiah says here to Pilate, my kingdom is not from now. Well, what is from now? Judgment is going to fall on my people for their rejection of me. Back in Matthew 12, paragraph 61, nothing's going to reverse that. Therefore, my kingdom is not going to be established now. Rather, judgment is going to fall on, on the nation. But I, one day I will set it up. But it's not now. So when Pilate asks, are you a king in competition to Caesar? He says no for two reasons. I'm not setting my kingdom up now. And number two, um, he says my kingdom is not of this world. Therefore, I'm not here to challenge Caesar. Now, later he's going to be asked, are you a king? Oh, yes, I am a king. But my kingdom is not yet going to appear. And thus Caesar has nothing to fear from me now. You know, if he did, then my servants would fight and you'd have something to think about. But right now, my servants are not going to fight. He's thinking the heavenly host. But right now, my servants are not going to fight. Because this is not the time of my kingdom. It is now the time of my suffering. And that's why earlier it said, uh, they went out into the darkness. This is the, uh, the time of, of darkness. What is the Greek word for world, do you know? That he uses? Just cosmos. Cosmos? Yeah. Yeah. So and there, there's no re really, you could make that comport with dispensation or eon. It doesn't, you can't really. Well, I believe it's cosmos here, but... Uh, the word cosmos certainly is used to denote the the world order of things that's contrary to God. Because yeah. yeah. wouldn't an amillennialist argue it is not of this creation? Yeah, could you be. But there is a, a distinction. I mean, but there's still the, the distinction of being in the world and of the world. Right. And th that uh, can't, shouldn't be minimized, especially in light of the fact that Yeshua does use those distinctions earlier in the same gospel as a prelude, he, he, it's during Passover, in, as a prelude to teaching his disciples, he's going to suffer, but he's going to send his spirit 
to uh, dwell in them. Which is why probably in 1 John 2.15, love not the world nor the things of the world, mm -hmm. it's mm -hmm. probably the same word, right? I would think. It, most likely, but I have to look. I have to look up. Okay, so now, um, invert. so Yeshua has said, my kingdom is not going to be established now, and my kingdom is not of this world, so I'm not in competition with Pilate. So in verse 37, Pilate then asks, are you a king then? Pilate asks, are you a king then in any sense of the word? And Yeshua says, you say that I am a king. To this end have I been born, and to this end have I come into the world, that I shall bear witness unto the truth. Everyone that is of the truth hears my voice. So Yeshua says he is a king, and he is a king of the truth, and those who hear his voice are of the truth. Now, that's a very strong phrase, too, of, of uh, God's sovereignty. You know, uh, why is it that we hear his voice as true and others when they hear his voice question because we are of the truth and they are not you know because god has sovereignly opened our eyes and our ears and our hearts to the truth he has chosen us is what he's saying all who hear my voice well who are the ones who hear my voice they're the ones that god has opened our hearts to because we're all dead and trespassing sins we can't hear his voice and so he says everyone that is of the truth will hear my voice and so those that are uh, set apart by God's grace hear his voice and are people of the truth and recognize him as, as the king. Then in verse 38, Pilate then sarcastically, uh, sarcastically question uh, where he says, what is truth? Brings the first stage of the Roman trial to an end. Um, and I suppose you might say, I mean, think about this. What is most disturbing in all of this is there is Pilate speaking to the one who is the way, the truth, and the life. I mean, he has a personal audience with the Messiah of Israel. Think about that. A personal audience with the second person of the triunity. And he's like so close, you know, but so far. And he, if he only he asked the question, not sarcastically, but honestly. So Yeshua, teach me. If you're the king of truth, teach me what is the truth. And Yeshua would have said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Any man comes, no man comes to the Father but by me. Place your faith. He would have told him how to be a person of truth. How to be a person who hears the truth. But by saying it sarcastically, Yeshua then um, is... Uh, is silent. And so that is a, uh, a sad reality. In Luke's account, Luke 23, verse 4, it says, And Pilate said unto the chief priests and the multitudes, I find no fault in this man. So this is his first declaration of innocence. And as far as Pilate is concerned, Yeshua is no threat to Rome. He's told him, I'm not in competition to Rome. I'm a king of truth. I'm not a king of uh, some empire. And my kingdom is not now. So... He's no threat to Rome. In Mark's account, verse, th verse 3, the Jewish be uh, leaders begin to accuse him of many things at this point. Then in verse 3 of Mark, it says, Mark 15, it says, And the chief priests accused him of many things. So initially they said it was sedition, rebellion, blasphemy, uh, competition to Caesar. 
Now there are many things they start because they are now scrambling. They're going to lose the opportunity. So they start accusing him uh, of many things to move the trial in their favor. And uh, in, Mark, in, Ma- in Matthew's account, verse 12, Yeshua responds by saying nothing. And when he was accused by the chief priests and elders, he answered nothing. In Mark's account, verses 4 and 5, Pilate asks Yeshua to respond. But he doesn't. And Pilate again asked him, saying, Answer thou nothing? Behold how many things they accuse of you. But Yeshua no more answered anything, insomuch that Pilate marveled that he was allowing them to simply accuse him, knowing that his fate was in Pilate's hands. And this is a serious matter that could lead to his execution in a most brutal way. And he is just purely silent. Remember, he said, no sign will come to Israel except one, the sign of Jonah. And as the Son of Man is in the earth three days and three nights in the heart of the earth, so will the, the Son of God. And so there's no sign. He's not going to defend himself. He's not going to try to argue against his accusers. He doesn't speak. When Pilate asks him these questions, he's, he does speak. And he uh, does respond to him. And with that, the first segment of the trial before Rome, remember there are three stages or three segments, comes to a close. And then we segue into the next statement, it's segment. Because what happened, according to Luke's account, verse 5, someone in the crowd, in the midst of these accusations that are being thrown around, given those three that I mentioned, rebelliousness, blasphemy, and competition with Caesar, were not enough to convict him. So they begin to, th- to say all kinds of accusations against Messiah. And in verse 5 of Luke's account, someone cries out, but they were the more urgent because they're losing a handle on this. And they began to say, he stirred up the people. He taught throughout all Judea, beginning from Galilee, even unto this place. So from Galilee to Jerusalem, he's been doing this. The moment Pilate hears someone mention Galilee, he thinks, ah, here's a way I can get out of this mess. Hand him over to Herod Antipas, who is the tetrarch or the governor of, uh, or a sort of like a mayor or leader under the governor in Galilee. So he figures, okay, I can get myself clean of this thing and let them handle it. So Pilate, in that instance, uh, he's, uh, he figures that uh, Herod had control over this area. So Pilate chooses to send Yeshua to Herod Antipas. And thus, in paragraph 160, looking at Luke chapter 23, we see his audience before um, Herod. Now, Herod Antipas was one of the sons of Herod the Great. Herod the Great, of course, is known for his architectural uh, accomplishments. He rebuilt the temple, which went on for some 40-some-odd years, and would go on, for, when Yeshua came on the scene, it would go on another 36 years. Uh, in 66, it would be complete, and then it would be destroyed in 70 AD. Uh, one of the most mar- marvels of the ancient world, Herod the Great. Herod the Great built the Herodian, he built Masada, he built Macarius, and he built other uh, pools and other things. Herod Antipas is Herod the Great's son. Herod Antipas 
was the one who had beheaded John about a year earlier. And uh, Herod has wanted to see Yeshua earlier. But on one occasion, you remember Yeshua said to tell that old fox no. He wouldn't go to Herod in order to attempt to entertain him in, by performing miracles for him as Herod wanted him to do. Um, even here, he wants Yeshua to perform miracles and signs and he's been wanting to see him. So he thought this is uh, a great opportunity for him to do so. As Yeshua is presented to him, he uh, remains silent. And... Um, And then we read in this section that Herod then caused a second mocking of the Messiah uh, to occur on this night. We also will find in this section a second declaration of his innocence because Herod's statement by sending him back to Pilate because he did not find anything in him that concerned him, that he did not see him as a threat to his own leadership in Galilee, let alone a threat to Rome. Now in verse 12, uh, if you look at verse 8, it says, Now when Herod saw Yeshua, he was exceedingly glad, for he was for a long time desirous to see him, because he had heard concerning him uh, the things that he had done, and he had hoped to see some miracles done by him. He questioned him in many words, but Yeshua answered him nothing. And then in verse 11, it says, And Herod with his soldiers set him at naught, mocked him, arrayed him in gorgeous apparel, and then sent him back to Pilate. And Herod and Pilate, an interesting phrase here, Herod and Pilate became friends with each other that very day, for before they were at enmity between themselves. Herod and Pilate become friends, though they were enemies. The the enmity between them was caused by Pilate becoming procurator. When Pilate became procurator, Pilate brought Roman legions into, or the Roman, a Roman legion into Jerusalem. When they entered into Jerusalem, Herod had them take their Roman shields and to mount them on the wall of the, on the walls that surrounded the temple compound. And so he hung these Roman shields on the walls, and the Roman shields had images of the various gods and goddesses that the Romans had worshipped. And this was contrary to Jewish sensitivity because the Jews, of course, were uh, taught very strenuously against idolatry and as a result a riot broke out and many were killed and um, despite the chaos Pilate still refused to take the shields down and Herod knew that there would be a continual point of contention between the Jewish people and Rome So Pilate asked, or I should say Herod asked on a variety of occasions to take the shields down, but Pilate continued to refuse. So Herod wrote a letter to the Roman Senate and telling him what Pilate had done and how these Roman shields were an offense 
to the people of Israel at Jerusalem who worshipped one God. And that because of this offensive action, there's going to be ongoing conflict and rebellion by the Jews against Rome. And it's not going to be easy to oversee and control this area. So the Senate ordered Pilate to take down the shields, which Pilate was forced to do. So the two then became enemies and refused to recognize each other's authority because of this conflict. But now they recognize their mutual authority and they become friends because Pilate acknowledges Herod's authority over Yeshua and says he's a Galilean. That's Herod's area. Send him to Herod. So Herod's happy now with Pilate because he's finally recognized his authority. But, Pilate, but Herod, after he interviews Yeshua, he realizes that he doesn't want to deal with him. So he now, by sending him back to Pilate, is recognizing Pilate's authority and saying, well, it's actually you who have authority over this one, not me. And thus they sort of come to grips uh, with each other regarding their ongoing feud, and it comes to an end. Um, it's interesting that they become friends at Yeshua's expense. Nine years later, by the way, in A.D. 39, Herod's wife, Herodias, um, who was the one who instigated the beheading of John, it was Herodias, the daughter of um, uh, Herod's, Herod's wife, who said to... Uh, Give me John's head on a platter. And uh, so now in A.D. 39, nine years later, right, Herodias had, uh, had talked Herod, Antipas, into traveling to Rome to request the title of king that his father had. And uh, this was the same title. Actually, the Senate conferred on Herod the great. And, um, and that's why he is known as the king of the Jews. But, um, and this Herodias desired because then she could be referred to as a queen. But the Roman Caesar, the Roman king in 39 was Caligula. And he was an insane madman. I don't know if you've ever read about Caligula, but... Uh, he was uh, a treacherous ruler, killed all kinds of people mercilessly. And he was one who had dipped into the Roman treasury, treasury freely to, uh, to build certain palaces. By the way, they had uncovered some of them in the Middle Ages. That's another story. I'll have to uh, share with you some of the things regarding uh, Caligula and a number of these Roman Caesars that all uh, had very interesting uh, things they accomplished. But he would pillage the Roman treasury for personal pleasure. And when Rome would run out of money, he would then make accusations against wealthy individuals in Rome, have them executed, and then uh, confiscate their property and their, and their assets, and then execute the family. And uh, he was so crazy, he even made his own horse a member of the Roman, Roman Senate. 
He was so bad that ultimately he was assassinated by members of the Praetorian Guard that were uh, those particularly assigned to protect him. But he was so cruel and such a horrible leader, they took it upon themselves to, to execute him. When Herod and Herodias came uh, to Caligula for the title of king, he deposed them to Lyon in what is today France. Both died in utter poverty. And as such, they paid for their sin of beheading John and for their uh, mockery of, uh, of Yeshua. Now, with Yeshua's audience before Herod, the second segment of the civil trial comes to a close. And in paragraph 161, again, looking at Mark 15, Matthew 27, Luke 23, and John 18, we have the third stage of the civil trial before we read of his execution. In this segment, in this section, in this stage of the trial, Pilate's going to make several attempts to have Yeshua released. And so if you look at Luke's account, uh, in verses 13 and 14, it says, And Pilate called together the chief priests and the rulers, um, chief priests and the rulers and the people, and said unto them, You brought unto me this man as one that perverted the people, and behold, I, having examined him before you, find no fault in this man touching those things which you accuse uh, him of. So in verses 13 and 14, we have the uh, first attempt to release Yeshua. We also find here, secondly, uh, we've just read the second declaration of his innocence by Herod. He found no fault with him, so he sends him back to Pilate. Here in this section, we find the third de declaration of his innocence by Pilate. But this does not appease the crowd. In John's account, verse 39, we learn that there was a tradition in Jerusalem, in Israel, that on a feast day, they would traditionally release a prisoner. So in verse 39 of John's account, it says... But you have a custom that I should release unto you one at the Passover. Would you, therefore, that I release you unto you, the king of the Jews? And, um, but what happens in Mark's account, verse 7, uh, we're told that there was one called Barabbas lying bound with them that had made insurrection, men who in the insurrection had committed murder. So we find that Barabbas, uh, and we read, read in another account where he's referred to as a, um, as a robber. Uh, look at John's account, verse 40, John 18. They cried out therefore again saying, not this man, but Barabbas. Now Barabbas was a robber. But the word robber here is not thief in the modern sense of the word. Um, this was a term that is used by Josephus to denote the Jewish rebels who were responsible for raiding Roman supply depots 
in order to fuel the rebellion that was led by the zealots. And that's why in Mark's account, he's not just referred to as a robber, but a murderer. So in the course of his activities to subvert Rome, he was one of those assigned to raid the depots, steal the supplies, and in that context, he must have killed uh, a number of Roman soldiers and was therefore acknowledged to be not merely a robber, like he was going into people's homes and stealing things. From Rome's perspective, he was a murderer and therefore and was an insurrectionist and worthy of being thrown in prison. Uh, not that necessarily he was a bad man, but he's, he's a violent uh, uh, overthrower desiring to overthrow uh, Rome. Now, and therefore, because he's a murderer, because of his, his seditious ways, he is worthy of the death penalty. And therefore, he could be executed. Now, Barabbas is not a name, although we oftentimes think it's a name. It's actually a Hellenized title. Just like Bar Mitzvah. It's not a name. It means son of the law. What, but Bar, Bar Abbas, Bar Abba, means Bar, son of, and, um, and Abba means father. So the name really denotes the son of, and then you'd have the person's father, father's name. So his father's name was probably Abba, even though it's also the word for father. Perhaps it was the name of his father and uh, so-called. And there he was, the son of, of the father is literally what it means. Um, from other sources, Josephus and others, we know that his name is Yeshua Bar Abba. And the Gospels do not give us his name. They just give us this title, Son of Abba. Probably because they did not want him confused with Yeshua, who is the Son of God. Right? So rather than get bogged down with that, they just don't tell us his, his first name. They just tell us he is the Son of Abba. So the one who is the son of Abba is the one that was in prison. But we don't want to say Yeshua bar Abba because we understand Yeshua the Messiah to be the son of God, the son of the Father. So there's a potential for conflict or misunderstanding. So they never tell us really his name, only his title, which is the one who is the son of Abba. But the irony, which, Yeshua, which John, this is in the Gospel of John, John oftentimes writes about various ironies. The irony here is... While Yeshua, the son of the father, had the title, he was not in reality the son of the father. Right? But Messiah, the one who's accused of the crime that Barabbas is guilty of, of which he is innocent, is the one who is truly the son of the father. It's kind of an interesting play on words and ironies that manifested itself at the death of Messiah. He who is not guilty of murder is the son of the father, while the one who is guilty of murder is not the son of the father, but that is what he is called. And a further irony is Barabbas is going to be released and Yeshua is going to die, as it were, in his place. Right? They could have called for Barabbas. He was, you know, uh, rebellious and a murderer, etc., they could have called for him, but they called on Yeshua to die. And thus, he will actually die in the place of a murderer, which is a way of, 
of thinking Yeshua dies for sinners. And um, so now, when as this is unfolding, Pilate anticipates that the crowd will cry out for Yeshua's release. But the proceedings are interrupted. Take a look at Matthew 19. So you have him brought before Pilate. He's now saying, look, I don't find anything wrong with him. I want to release him. They say, no, 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 no. He's guilty of this, that, and the other. He said, well, you know, there's a custom that you have that one prisoner could be released. And I'll release him. No, we want Barabbas. Now, while all that is happening, off to the side, another thing happens. And that's found in Matthew chapter 27, verse 19. While he was sitting on the judgment seat. Now, one of the things that... um, perhaps I, I didn't mention is that when, when the charge of uh, uh, sedition is brought up, Pilate then takes his seat. Let me see where I have that. Um, well, he takes his seat on the, on the judgment seat, which means now he has to render a decision because he's now not just merely interviewing uh, Yeshua, but he's now acting as the uh, uh, judicial authority. And so it says, while he was sitting in the judgment seat, his, his wife sent unto him saying, have nothing to do with that righteous man, for I have suffered many things many things this day in a dream because of him now the chief priests and the elders persuaded the multitudes that they should ask for Barabbas and destroy Yeshua so during this interlude while they're crying out you know we want Barabbas we want this that Pilate's wife comes and says I got to talk to you he interrupts the proceedings he goes off talks with his wife his wife is telling look I had a terrible dream last night and I suffered many things maybe he said what kind of things What's, what, what, going on? what was the dream about oh and it's about this man this righteous man don't have anything to do with him and maybe he's questioning him that time gives the chief priests and the elders enough time to speak to the crowd as a whole and to persuade the crowd to ask for Barabbas rather than to ask for Yeshua So even this is all in Messiah's hands. If that interlude doesn't take place, perhaps the crowd is still mixed. And Pilate says, you know, I'm having nothing to do with this. The man is free. But now when he comes back out, the crowd is unified against the Messiah. And that puts Pilate in a very precarious and difficult uh, situation. When um, in, in Christian tradition, by the way, uh, her name is Claudia. And according to Christian tradition, she does become uh, a believer. But in Matthew verse 20, the interruption was long enough for the following things to happen. The Jewish leaders begin to convince the crowd to cry for Barabbas. Pilate then gives us the second attempt in this section where he says, I find nothing wrong with this man at declaring Yeshua innocent. But that fails when he gives the crowd a choice between Barabbas and Yeshua. In John's account, look at verse 1. Now we're looking at chapter 19 of John. Verse 1, Then Pilate therefore took Yeshua and scourged him. And the soldiers 
placed a crown of thorns and put it on his head and arrayed him in purple garment. And they came unto him and said, Hail, King of the Jews. And they struck him with their hands. So, um, this Pilate attempts for the third time to have Yeshua released. And then, when that's rejected, he attempts a kind of compromise. And thus he has him scourged as a compromise. There are two kinds of scourging. There was a Jewish scourging and there was a Roman scourging. The, Ro- the Jewish scourging was referred to as 40 minus 1, which would be 39 stripes. The Jewish scourge had a handle that was made of wood or leather. The Mosaic Law, by the way, uh, permits a lashing or scourging of 40 lashes. The rabbis called it 40 minus 1 because like, uh, so as not to break the law, they said you should stop at 39. And the reason they wanted to stop at 39 is because if you miscounted and you actually hit them 41 or 42, you would be guilty of breaking the law. So they said 40 minus 1. Always just count to 39. But under uh, Jewish scourging, they had a scourge made with a wooden handle, a leather handle, or a leather handle with short leather straps, and only the back would be affected. It would certainly uh, hurt, but it would be painful, but it would not be deadly. By the way, Paul endured five scourgings during his ministry, and he survived and endured them all. Amazing to think about that. The Roman scourging was much more severe. First of all, there were no limitations. They could hit you as long as they wanted. The Roman scourge had a wooden handle or a leather handle, but the straps were long so that they could wrap around an individual. And these leather straps had attached to the ends of them pieces of sharpened metal, bone, or, uh, um, or, or rocks on its side, and the perp- or glass. And the purpose of this was so that it would just rip your skin. And it would, uh, you know, it could rip the skin off your arms, your side, your back. It could wrap around you. And uh, particularly notable was one's face. And when they talked of scourging, they oftentimes disfigured uh, individuals' faces so that we read some accounts so disfigured that individuals couldn't even recognize uh, those that had been uh, scourge. By the way, this is what Isaiah 52 says. He was marred more than any man so that he was unrecognizable. We couldn't recognize him. So Yeshua's uh, mistreatment was very, uh, very severe. By the way, in Hebrews chapter 12, we're told that we are to go over on occasion the sufferings of Messiah to remember what he had endured uh, in our place. And of course, that was secondary to the eternal separation from the Father that he endured in our place. So, and then the the soldiers place on him the purple garments and the crown of thorns, uh, and this then becomes the third mocking that Yeshua endures. In John's account, verse 5, we have the fourth declaration of his innocence by Pilate, as he hopes, this is enough, and Yeshua might be released. And Pilate went out again and said unto them, Behold, I bring him out to you, that you may know that I find no crime in him. 
Remember, he continues to refer to Yeshua as their king because Yeshua said he was a king. I'm the king of truth. And anyone who believes, hears my voice uh, knows the truth. Or anyone who knows the truth believes my voice. And so uh, when, he, when Pilate acknowledges him as a king, maybe there's a mockery in there, but it's because Yeshua said he was a king. And he indicated he was not a king in competition to Rome, but he was a king of the truth among his people. So he speaks of him as the king of the Jews or as your king. Now, in um, verse uh, 5 and 6, after he attempts to have him released. In verses 5 and 6, the crowd continues to cry out to crucify him. Yeshua, therefore, came out wearing the crown of thorns, the purple garment. And Pilate said unto them, Behold the man. And when therefore the chief priests and officers saw him, they cried out, saying, Crucify him, crucify him. Pilate said unto them, Take him yourselves and crucify him, for I find no crime in him. And so this is the fourth attempt to release Yeshua in verse 6. Now keep in mind, Pilate has the final decision whether he, Yeshua, will die or not. If... Um, if Pilate does not pass a Roman sentence upon him, he will not die. And Pilate refuses to pass a Roman sentence at this point. In verse 7, this causes the crowd to jot, drop the charge of sedition. You notice they do not cry out, oh, he's blaspheming. But in verse 8... We then begin to see now that, uh, of, or verse 7, a new tr charge is trumped up. And so if you look at verse 7, the Jews answered him. He says, we find no crime in him. The Jewish uh, multitude that's there and the leaders, they ask him, we have a law. And by that law, he ought to die because he made himself the son of God. Now to Pilate, that has not been brought up. They said that he is guilty of rebellion, sedition, and challenging uh, Caesar. Now we see what the real issue is, as far as the Jewish leaders were concerned, blasphemy. He claimed to be God. So Yeshua is going to be brought up on, is, going to be, is brought up on false charges only to have the real charge manifest itself. This is like John the Baptist as well. False charges... Uh, and then the real issue is behind the scene. So, um, so the issue that has been troubling the Jewish leaders has been Yeshua's claim to be the Messiah, the Son of God. And in verses 8 to 11, now that Pilate has a new charge, he has a new interview with, with uh, Messiah. But now Yeshua will not answer his questions. So in verse 8 it says, When Pilate therefore heard this, he claims to be the Son of God, he was the more afraid. Because this has nothing to do with Rome. And he finds himself with a riot about to ensue. A riot that had ensued earlier, a few years earlier, when he first came on the scene and put up the Roman shields, and he doesn't want this to go out of hand, and then word to get back to the emperor, 
that uh, he can't control the people in Israel and thus to be deported or demoted or worse. So now he's all the more afraid because he's losing control and the trial is now turning to a religious uh, issue which he has no relation to. So he entered into the palace again. He said unto Yeshua, from where are you? What are your origins? Are you the son of God or what is this? But Yeshua gave him no answer. Pilate therefore spoke unto him uh, again and said, Do you not speak to me? Do you not know that I have power to release you and I have power to crucify you? Yeshua then answered, You would have no power against me except it was given you from above. Therefore, he that delivered me into your hands has the uh, greater sin. So now that Pilate has a new charge, he has a new interview, Yeshua doesn't answer. When Pilate presses Yeshua to answer, Yeshua says that all government authority is only of a delegated kind from above. It is not final authority. The only reason you have what authority you have is because it's been delegated to you from above, from my Father. You are fulfilling the will that the Father has uh, for me. And um, But here's another thing Yeshua says. So the one, because he has delegated authority, he says the ones who turned him, Yeshua, over to Pilate will be guilty of the greater sin. And uh, because they turned him over to Pilate. In other words, the top, Yeshua is affirming the trial has not originated with you. It's originated with them. They have the greater sin. What's important about this phrase is there are degrees of sin. There are sins that are greater than others. Pilate is going to be said, it's going to be said of Pilate that he is among those guilty for the death of Messiah. Peter will say it. And the earliest creeds, the Apostle Creed says, crucified under Pontius Pilate. So Pilate's going to have, he has a responsibility in the death of Messiah. It's affirmed by Peter. It's affirmed by the early believers. And it is, it is seen by his actions here. He has sinned. But the greater sin are those that have plotted against him. The point here is that not all sin is the same. Some sin is greater than other sin. And I know we always hear all sin is the same. And it doesn't matter what you've done. You can be forgiven by God. It is true. It doesn't matter what you have done. You can be forgiven by God. But that's not because your sin is the same as the next person's sin. It's because the greatness of Messiah's death is capable of providing forgiveness for all kinds of sin, any kind of sin. But that doesn't mean all sins the same. All sins are different. And there are some that are greater than others. And the Lord will judge accordingly. And Yeshua is telling us that here. He that delivered me unto you has greater sin. He's sinned more greatly, more heinously, and therefore is deserving of greater punishment. So the notion that all sin the same is just a misnomer. It preaches well, but it's just not true. In uh, verse 12, we read of his fifth attempt to release Yeshua. Upon this, Pilate sought to release him. But then the Jewish people cried out. The leaders and those multitudes gathered, cried out, saying, If you release this man, you are no friend of Caesar. Everyone that makes himself a king speaks against Caesar. If you release this man, you're, you're not Caesar's friend. When Pilate hears these words, you're not Caesar's friend, he then takes his seat on the judgment seat 
And now a verdict must be issued. And if a verdict is issued, a sentence must be set. Now the reason Pilate is manipulated by this phrase, you are no friend of Caesar's, is because of events that have happened previously back in Rome. So what has happened? Well, Pilate received his position as procurator because of his friendship with a man named Sejanus, S-E-A-J-A-N-U-S. Sejanus was a captain of the Praetorian Guard in Rome. And he suggested to the emperor that Pilate become procurator of Judea and Samaria. And thus he was, uh, upon the recommendation of Sejanus. But then Sejanus thought he would become emperor. And he organized a conspiracy against the emperor Tiberius. The conspiracy was uncovered, and Sejanus and other conspirators were executed. And now, the Senate was investigating everyone connected with Sejanus and who were friends with him. So when the Jewish leaders here say, we have no king of, but Caesar, and if you let this man go, you are no friend of Caesar's, well, those were hard words for Pilate because he did not want to be found uh, being a friend of Sejanus because he's going to be investigated and to be thought of as being a part of the conspiracy. And if questions are raised regarding what the Jewish leaders thought of Pilate and they said he's no friend of, C of Caesar's, well, now he's concerned that that may factor into uh, the investigation of Pilate because of his friendship. And Pilate himself was under investigation at that time. And thus, this cry is sufficient to put Pilate on the judgment seat to render a verdict. In verse 14, we read that uh, he brought Yeshua out. He sat down on the judgment seat at the palace called the pavement, but in Hebrew, Gabbatha. Now it was the preparation of the Passover. It was about the sixth hour. He said unto the Jews, Behold your king. And this was, in verse 14, um, his sixth and last attempt to release Yeshua. In verse 15, they respond uh, by saying, We have uh, no king uh, but Caesar. And they, um, and they disown Yeshua as king, and they now own uh, Caesar as, as their king. They therefore cried out, away with him, away with him, crucify him. Pilate said unto them, shall I crucify your king? The chief priest answered, we have no king but Caesar. In Matthew's account, verse 24, now you're looking at Matthew 27, so when Pilate saw that he prevailed nothing, but rather that a tumult, a riot was arising, he took water, washed his hands before the multitude, saying, I am innocent of the blood of this righteous man. This is the fifth declaration of its innocence. 
and the most important one because he makes it from the judgment seat upon which he stands, sits. So at the very moment he's about to condemn him, he first affirms his innocence. At that point, he had a moral obligation to release him because he rendered a verdict and now the sentence ought to have been release him. But he doesn't. By washing his hands, Pilate does not exonerate himself from guilt. He's not absolved simply because he says he's innocent and he washes his hands. He is guilty, and that's why the Apostles' Creed had said, it's the earliest creed we have in the, in the, among the believers, he said, suffered, un, it says, the creed says, suffered under Pontius Pilate. And the, this is uh, a, a uh, repetition of Peter's words in Acts 2, where Pilate is included among those guilty of the death of Messiah. Interestingly, in AD 36, about six years later or so, Pilate and his wife were banished to Gaul near Vienna, Austria, by Caligula, and there he committed suicide. In Matthew verse 25, we read, And all the people answered and said, His blood be on us and on our children. Only Matthew mentions this statement. Matthew mentions it because he alone is tracing the consequences of the unpardonable sin, made reference to back in paragraph 61, where the Jewish leaders lead the nation in rejecting Messiah. Now he follows through with this, that the judgment is going to be impact not only them, but also their children. And in 70 AD, those that were there at the crucifixion of Messiah, who are now there in 70 AD, will see the destruction of, Jer of the temple in Jerusalem, and their children will see it and experience it as well. So this curse is limited um, to this generation at the time of Messiah's death and their children no further. There's no mention of third, fourth generation and thus fulfilled in A.D. 70. In Luke verse 25, um, we read, and, and Pilate gave sentence that what they asked for should be done. And he released him that for insurrection and murder had been cast into prison whom they asked for, but Yeshua he did, delivered up to their will. So Yeshua is turned over to be crucified. Barabbas is released. And thus Yeshua is a substitute for him and for all sinners like him. In paragraph 162, as the trial uh, is brought to a close, we have the final mockery. Um, in one, paragraph 162, the Roman cohort now takes charge. Verse 16 of Mark's account in chapter 15. And the soldiers led him away within the court, which is the praetorium. And they called together the whole band, the whole cohort, 600 soldiers or so. And they clothed him with purple. And they placed a crown of thorns. They put it on him. They began to salute him. They began to say, Hail, King of the Jews. And they smote his head with a reed. And they spit upon him. And they bowed their knees. And they worshipped him. So the Roman cohort takes charge. This is the fourth uh, mockery. It's the last mistreatment of Messiah 
uh, before the cross. And then in paragraph 163, uh, we'll pick up in two weeks, I guess. In 163, we then have uh, Yeshua on the way to uh, Golgotha and uh, the place of execution. And next week, hopefully, we can get from 163 to 168. And that will conclude his arrest, trial, crucifixion, and burial. And then in a couple of weeks, we'll look at the remaining sections, which deals with his resurrection, his appearance, appearances, and his ascension into heaven. We're almost there. You know, it's pretty exciting to know that we study this. But these are, in some sense, horrible things to reflect on. Uh, but on the other hand, they are the fulfillment of prophecy and the means by which atonement has been made. Now, before I take any questions, it's just after nine. I do need to meet with uh, Angie. I want to talk with her before we leave. So let, let me just keep this short tonight, and uh, we could talk a little bit more next week. But if you have any thoughts or questions you wanted to share. The 2725 verse, his blood be on us and our children. You're saying, did I hear you correctly, that that self-imprecation uh, worked itself out up until 70 AD, that that was something that there was a divine hand involved there and only to that point? Right, yes. And the reason why I look at it that way is because I think Matthew has recorded it. Uh, Number one, it was said. Now, one could argue, so does the Lord honor those words and and bring about um, this quote-unquote curse? But we have a judge or judgment. We have a judgment set back in Matthew 12 that would fall on this generation. And in a way, that statement is an affirmation of the judgment that Yeshua speaks about in Matthew 12. Matthew 12, they don't believe it. And even, you know, they don't believe it here either. They're just saying it as a statement of utter disdain for Yeshua. But from our vantage point and from Matthew's vantage point, I think the reason he includes that statement whereas the others don't is because he has a particular concern to show how the Jewish leadership, Matthew 12 now, led the nation to reject the Messiah and therefore the kingdom and consequently uh, make themselves vulnerable to this judgment that would fall on this generation. And now at the uh, trial, here they are affirming that reality, which would come about 78 AD. But don't you think that that has been a cry of the anti-Semite through the ages? Oh, of course. Just as, the, as in the Gospel of John, his reference to the Jews this, the Jews that, yeah. has also right. been used. Certainly people misuse God's word. Paul and no Thessalonians. Question. Same thing. Same thing. But so you you don't think that there is any, in other words, you believe the enemy has taken that and used that as an argument or a rallying cry for the anti-Semite, whereas God, God may have been involved at 70 A.D., but not beyond that. I think God is involved in all kinds of things, but the 70 A.D. judgment is the judgment that is made reference to in Matthew 12 and the judgment or curse that would be understood in in this section of Matthew 27. But my thought is that, in in other words, people through history 
and even those among Jewish believers have argued the case that Israel's rejection of the Messiah has expressed itself with the pogroms, with the Spanish Inquisition, with the Holocaust, with all kinds of horrible things, yes. which would lend a credibility to a divine hand in those things. Uh, it gets touchy. It gets yeah. really... I think the Matthew passage is limited to 70 AD. But in Matthew 23, when Yeshua says, I wanted to gather you as a hen gathers her chicks, but you would not, behold, your house is left unto you desolate. I think there we, we're getting a sense that the protective covering of God is being withdrawn and thus Israel is becoming an open prey to the nations and the nations and the evil one is uh, harming God's people now the Lord says I will never permit a full end to you sort of like Job you know you can go so far but that's where it ends same thing with Israel he may permit the evil one to go so far but not so far as to destroy the entire people. It's kind of like the uh, contrapositive of uh, the 91st Psalm. He that dwelleth not in the secret place of the Most High shall not abide under the shadow of the Almighty. Yeah. Is there anything else? All right, well, let's pray. And uh, thanks for coming. So we're only going to have a few more weeks, uh, and we, we're going to get through. Father, we thank you for your marvelous love and grace. We thank you, Lord, for bringing us this far in the study of the life of Messiah. Lord, our Lord has had endured such painful things and uh, such extreme things and all of that uh, so as to be the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world, to be the sacrificed Lamb. And during this season, as we uh, prepare to celebrate Pesach, Passover, uh, and remember the redemptive grace you provided for Israel by means of the blood of the Lamb. So we are moved to see as the blood of the Lamb, the Messiah of Israel, is uh, let, that it, as a result, can provide us with redemption and life as well. We are grateful for that. May we always live our lives in light of your great sacrifice. Not take it for granted, but be willing servants that uh, offer ourselves as living sacrifices unto you in return for all you've done for us. We pray in Yeshua's name.